our tools that we use clinically to manage infections are just not working. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, antimicrobial resistance. What would happen if the medicines we all take for granted, antibiotics, stopped working? Unfortunately, it's already happening. We found it's a really big problem. One and a quarter million people, their deaths are directly attributable to resistance. Antimicrobial resistance has its own acronym, AMR, but it's probably not something most of us give much thought to. The average person should care about AMR because when you get sick, you expect to go to the doctor and get a therapy that is going to cure you. And if the available antibiotics don't work anymore, then something that shouldn't kill you can kill you. We talked to this researcher who has looked at how antimicrobial resistance is advancing around the world. And we talked to the UK's special envoy on AMR. Was the technical people, our microbiologists knew of this problem, antimicrobial resistance, AMR, and how it was rising, and yet they weren't managing to get action on it. It's a big problem, but there are potential solutions. This matters to everyone on the planet, and everyone's got to play their role. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating or review, and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, and with this look at antimicrobial resistance, AMR is a form of pandemic. This is Radio Davos. It was a century ago that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, and since then humans have come to rely on it and the various antibiotics that have followed to cure countless illnesses. But Fleming, a Scottish microbiologist, also discovered that bacteria could develop resistance to penicillin, and that's a problem that has grown to a point where millions of people are now at risk of dying as the drugs they're taking fail to cure them. Later in the show, we'll hear from the UK's special envoy on antimicrobial resistance, who talks about some important solutions. First, to get an idea of the size of the problem in the world, I spoke to an organisation that gathers and examines health data all over the globe to work out what the big health problems are. It's based in the US, it's called the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. It's known for its annual Global Burden of Disease Study. Christopher Murray is Director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which this year published a report into the worldwide impact of antimicrobial resistance, which had some surprising findings. Before we got into that, I asked Chris Murray to explain just exactly what AMR is. Antimicrobial resistance is when a bacteria or a pathogen is able to avoid the effects of an antibiotic. So they have a mutation and they're able to, the drugs, the antibiotics just don't work on a resistant pathogen. And it's important because if you get one of those infections and you're counting on an antibiotic um, saving your life, for example, and they don't work, well, that, that leads to much worse outcomes. And this is what's sometimes known as a superbug, is that right? Well, yes. Uh, the term superbug is sometimes reserved for pathogens or bacteria that are resistant to, you know, pretty much everything that's out there. And so, uh, but it's it's of that idea that uh, our tools that we use clinically to manage infections are just not working. Why is this a problem in the grand scheme of things? So if I get ill in something that I want to be cured, I'll be unfortunate and the disease will kill me. But is it, is it bigger than just a few individuals are going to be affected by that? Is this something, is this kind of a threat to the whole of humanity in some way? 
Well, if you go back, you know, 70, 80 years, uh, we've seen real progress on managing the toll of uh, infectious disease around the world because of the advent, the discovery of antibiotics, you know, going back to penicillin with Pasteur. And if those antibiotics that we count on to have brought down death rates from things like pneumonia, which uh, still kills a lot of children, but was a much bigger killer 50, 60 years ago, uh, if, if we lose the ability to treat those infections, then it's a real threat to our, the progress we've made in, in this last 70 years. So how do bugs become resistant to antibiotics? Bugs become resistant by getting a bit of DNA that allows them to avoid the mechanism of action for the antibiotic. Uh, and the only way they're going to get that bit of DNA is if there is antibiotics in, in some way out there selecting for mutations and so that that resistance pattern spreads. So you, you get it by using antibiotics. That's sort of the paradox here. The more you use antibiotics, the more likely we are to see mutations that will be resistant to those antibiotics. Let's, so let's look at this on a global scale as exactly you did for this work in The Lancet. Could you tell us what you were trying to do in that report? The basic idea of the report goes back five years ago when this, this effort started, which was to build into that annual effort, the Global Burden of Disease Study, you know, the assessment of how many people die, how many people get sick from antimicrobial resistance. And so we started by trying to find all the data that's out there from labs, from hospitals, from clinics, from death certificates that would give us some insight into how many people are dying from each bacteria, and then how many of those deaths are related to drug resistance. And when we did all that, we found it's a really big problem. Uh, one and a quarter million people, their deaths are, are directly attributable to resistance, and nearly five million deaths are occurring from infections where the bacteria is resistant to an antibiotic. So you've called this the first global estimate of the burden of bacterial AMRs. This is the first time the world's had a, some idea of the size of this problem all around the world. Is that right? Yes. There's been lots of you know very good detailed studies in a particular hospital or a particular place. There was even a sort of comprehensive look at bacterial uh, and, and drug resistance in Europe. But this is the first ever effort to try to look at the totality in every country of the world of uh, deaths and, and disease attributable to antimicrobial resistance. The number of one and a quarter million deaths is when we look at how many people have resistant pathogens uh, and then how much more likely are you to die if your bacteria that you're infected with is resistant versus if it's not. So that's the, the one and a quarter million deaths. You can also just count the number of times people die and the bacteria that they're infected with is drug resistant. And that's the bigger number, 5 million. And the, and the difference between them is whether or not you think if you didn't get, let's say, the pneumonia with a drug resistant bacteria, you would have had no pneumonia at all, or would you have been infected with a drug sensitive one? And that's the difference between the one and a quarter and the 5 billion number. Truth or, or the, the full burden is somewhere between those two numbers. 
So in, in any way you count, this is a very big global problem. Was there anything in this study that surprised you? You know, there were lots of things that surprised me. I think the, the biggest surprise is that uh, lots of people thought that AMR was really a problem only in rich countries. But what we found is that it's a, it's a global problem. It's, it's not only present in low-income and middle-income countries, but actually the death rate from AMR is highest in the low-income world, and it's actually lowest in the high-income world. And the reason is that there's sort of two things going on there. One is the fraction of infections that are resistant, and then the total number of infections. And so while the fraction of infections in, let's say, West Africa that is resistant are lower than in Europe, the actual number of pneumonias, of urinary tract infections, of bloodstream infections is so much higher that the death toll from AMR is actually highest in West Africa. So not a first world problem, as some people may have thought, places with great healthcare and lots of money being spent on pharmaceuticals and maybe an overuse of antibiotics, which is one of the major problems here. Is it going to get worse? Look, we think uh, that it will get worse. In fact, we're, we're trying to do that more formally and sort of give a, a sense of how much worse and over what time frame. But that's work in progress. But all the, du the direction of use of antibiotics is towards more use, not less. And the more we use, the more we'll see resistance, the more we should expect to see uh, you know, the, the burden of AMR go up in the future, not go down. Okay. So what, what should we do about it? I notice there's a list of strategies, things that we do need to be aware of. There's lots of ways to think about the, the, the sort of package of strategies to try to manage this problem. But I tend to put it together at a, a sort of a set of things we should do at the, globally, and then what you should do at the national level, and then what we can do as individuals. At the global level, there's really two things. One is monitor, have better surveillance on AMR. You know, this was a first ever sort of almost Herculean task of trying to pull together all these disparate uh, data sources, but we should, as a routine basis, be tracking this. It's a true health problem. We should we should track it at the global level. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, we need to have a robust pipeline of discovery of new antibiotics. You know, one way, it's it's sort of like an arms race. Uh, if if the bugs figure out how to evade our current antibiotics, we need to be continuing to invest in the R&D to come up with new antibiotics, both by pharmaceutical companies and, and the sort of research councils that are out there. Is that happening already or not enough? You know, I think we're starting to see uh, more, but the rate of discovery of new antibiotics has been much lower in recent years than in past decades. And to some extent, I think it's because, you know, people have, uh, including the pharmaceutical industry, have, have, have not recognized how quickly antibiotics are becoming ineffective. And so that it is going to be a, an important area for uh you know, discovery and for, for sales uh, in the future. So that, that's sort of the global story. At, at the national level, governments can do lots of things and clinical societies can do lots of things to try to encourage 
the appropriate use of antibiotics. Somebody who needs an antibiotic needs to get it, otherwise they'll get sick and die. But on the other hand, there's lots of people who don't need antibiotics where we use them, uh, and that encourages the development of resistance. And so there's a, there's a, a you know, some people call this antibiotic stewardship, uh, but it's really about using antibiotics appropriately when they're needed and not when they're not needed. There's also talk about antibiotics used in farming, in livestock. There's, yeah, there's two other strategies to deal with the burden of AMR. One is, uh, although, you know, the, the evidence is not, uh, included in our study, there's there are suggestions and it makes sense that widespread use of antibiotics in animals um, is uh, also selecting for resistant antibiotics. And so that's an area that could well, you know, yield benefits uh, by reducing just the amount of antibiotic that's out there in the food supply. There's another strategy as well, which is where we have tools to reduce the number of infections. Let's say pneumococcal vaccine for pneumonia. We should use those to the, the, the greatest extent possible because one sure way to avoid you know, getting a drug-resistant pneumonia is just not to get pneumonia in the first place. And so intervening through vaccines and reducing other risk factors that increase infections is also part of the sort of overall strategy here. Maybe we've all got better at health prevention in COVID. Well, we've seen a very dramatic effect of mask wearing and social distancing on things like flu and respiratory syncytial virus and possibly some bacterial pneumonias. And, you know, it's quite dramatic, actually, in the numbers, the, the side benefit of, of those behaviors. Will those be sustained? I doubt it. We might see seasonal mask use, as, as is common in, in East Asia, you know, becoming part of our culture. Uh, and in which case we might see a reduction in some of those conditions. You, you've set it out at a kind of global level, national level, personal level. So let's look at the personal level. If I get sick, then should I not be asking the doctor to, to, to give me an antibiotic? Should I kind of just tough it out? What's, I mean, it's, it's a tough decision to make, isn't it? Well, if you get sick, you should uh, not badger your healthcare provider to give you antibiotics when they're not saying you need them. A lot of uh, you know healthcare providers, physicians, uh, and others often feel pressure from patients to give them something. And when they say, "Look, you have a viral infection, and there's no nothing much I, I can offer you at this point," there is often pushback to get antibiotics. And I think that's also a problem. There's also you know availability of quite sophisticated antibiotics over the counter in some countries, where you know, individuals just go self-prescribe and buy antibiotics, uh, and that's also not helpful. And on a global level, uh, is, is there some kind of global policy that could help? Well, you know, uh, there isn't a governing body that has any uh, authority over all the healthcare providers in the world. Uh, you know, WHO has got a program on antibiotic resistance. Uh, they have a, uh, you know, they've upgraded their presence on it. There's now an assistant director general for uh, AMR, which is a really good thing. It's just signaling that they see it as important, and they can provide sort of general guidelines and encouragement towards coming up with national action plans. But it's not really WHO's role to set out clinical guidelines uh, and, and you know, best practices.
One of the things that really was surprising to me and to the team, just how there's a set of bacteria that most people have never heard of that cause you know, hundreds of thousands and in some case, millions of deaths each year in the world. There's a group of these large bacterial pathogens that just aren't on the radar, even of professionals in the sort of global health field. Uh, and I think that's been a surprise that uh, because they cause so many different clinical syndromes, they're buried in, in the details. And so when you put the numbers together, suddenly you realize that there's this set of pathogens that are you know, as big as, or in some cases, bigger than HIV and tuber tuberculosis and malaria. And yet there's no global program on them. There's, they're not even a sort of recognized target necessarily for vaccine development. There's really... I think some surprising insight into the, the world's leading pathogens that comes uh, from this study as well. And so if it surprised people at that level who are involved in it, doesn't that show there's a, a real lack of understanding and a lack of appreciation of this problem and how big it is and how diverse it is? Well, this sort of goes back to the sort of core reason we run this study that's now been going for 30 years. First step towards doing something about them is you have to recognize there is a problem. Uh, and so it sort of you know, reaffirms our general belief on the importance of getting the numbers right and telling people about it, uh, whether they're in the, the, the general public or even the, the technical audience that also may lack insights into the totality of what's out there. Christopher Murray, Director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Dame Sally Davis is the UK's Special Envoy on Antimicrobial Resistance. Before that, she was Chief Medical Officer for England and Chief Advisor on Health to the UK Government for around a decade. I asked her whether the gravity of the problem of AMR and people's attitudes to it had changed during her career. I am actually a doctor and it's always been a problem. It was predicted by Fleming when he won his Nobel Prize that bugs would develop resistance to antibiotics and people would die as a result. It's natural selection. And I still remember looking after patients through my career where I had to, the microbiologist would come and say, this patient has a bacterium that is resistant to the standard treatment. Now you need to swap to a different treatment. That was fine. The problem that has arisen is that we are running out of antibiotics and the pipeline's rather empty. And um, just to give you an example of this, of the 26 antibiotics in the clinical pipeline active against the priority pathogens of WHOs, only seven fulfill at least one criteria of innovation. And we're not putting enough money into it. So just under 10 billion into cancer research and only 132 million into antibiotics research. And what I found as chief medical officer, and it first really hit me in 2013, was the technical people, our microbiologists, knew of this problem, antimicrobial resistance, AMR, and how it was rising, not just resistance in bacteria, but HIV, TB, malaria, all infections. And yet they weren't managing to get a policy focus and action on it. And I think we've steadily raised awareness. But, you know, not fast enough and not good enough. Um, in 2019, we had, as a result of a lot of activity and pushing 
at the UN from our, uh, our government and many others, the Dutch, the Swedes, we were joined by the Japanese. We had a high-level meeting and they set up the Interagency Coordination Group. In 2019, that group warned there was no time to wait. In 2020, the World Health Organization listed AMR as one of its top 10 threats facing humanity. In 21, we had a concrete analysis of the global pipeline of antimicrobials, and it's insufficient. And now, here we are in 2022, we've recently got the data from the Gram study showing that deaths associated with AMR are the third leading cause of death globally. So the problem is rising. People have been raising the flag of concern, yet not enough action. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic has shown to the world what a pandemic of untreatable disease can do not just to people, but to economies. So we're going to have to do more about it. And politicians are getting it. Um, G7 finance ministers made commitments under our UK G7 presidency. The Germans in their G7 presidency have AMR as an issue. But there's a long way to go. And we need to start with preventing infections that has shown to be important through COVID, infection prevention and control, good hygiene, clean water and sanitation, good vaccine programs, but then we need to use antibiotics effectively and have a pipeline that's strong. So, you know, this matters to everyone on the planet and everyone's got to play their role, whether it's the uh, patients, the clinicians, the private sector, governments. I'm... Uh, at the moment arguing that we really need to have AMR in any pandemic treaty that comes out of the negotiations that have just started at the WHO. We've got to include AMR in the surveillance, in the risk assessments, and I would argue that we need to include AMR in ESG standards for investment. We've really got to move forward and take this seriously at every level. But it'll be much easier than climate change. And if we don't sort it, people will be dead before climate change kills them. Wow. Well, that puts it into perspective. I mean, as you were talking about that, it's similar in, in a way to climate change in that experts who are up against it all the time are telling us about these risks. But until it becomes that massive immediate crisis, as we had with, with COVID, which I know is a different issue, but a global health problem, suddenly the world engages. But this is one of these that's creeping up on upon us and has been for decades, just like climate change. Absolutely. And, the, and of course, the other thing there is the complexity. And it's very difficult for policymakers and everyone to handle complexity. And, you know, we need more drugs. We need better diagnostics. We need to prevent infections. We need looking after the drugs we've got. All of this complexity... And it's not just human health. In animal, over 70% of antibiotics are used in, in the food chain, in animal health. And of course, we want to treat sick animals. But we actually need to stop using antibiotics as cheaper than clean cleanliness, biosecurity, and as growth promoters. 
and a lot is. So there's all these other ramifications. And a final one, let me just put on the table now, is environmental contamination. Animals pee and poo out over 70% of antibiotics. So they go into the water um, through the sewage. Meanwhile, a lot of antibiotic preparing um, factories are spewing out masses of antibiotics into water tables and everything. So you can see how this complexity, just like climate change, makes it even more difficult to take forward action. You were talking there about a global treaty. What, what, what were you referring to there? Arising out of the pandemic at the World Health Organization Assembly early summer last year, there was an agreement that we needed to have an instrument across the world, a treaty of some form, that meant that we were better prepared and better able to respond. So we're, the member states of the year, WHO have started to negotiate a treaty and have agreed a negotiation group of countries and people who are working on this. And my argument is, well, you, you're now thinking about SARS and viruses, but it could be a flu pandemic, both viruses, but it could be Ebola that really gets out of its box. It can be bacteria, and AMR is a form of pandemic. It satisfies the um, definition that it's across multiple continents and it's untreatable, and we haven't met it before as it goes up and up. So I think that as most of the solutions that we need for pandemics, we need for AMR, they, we need to integrate the work. After all, you have to have surveillance, you need vaccines, you need infection prevention and control. It is, most of it is exactly the same need. So I would argue that we'd be very silly as a world to leave AMR out of any pandemic treaty. Uh, and I hope that everyone listening to your podcast will be asking their negotiators from their countries to make sure AMR is part of the treaty. Very interesting. Let's let's move on to one of the things you mentioned, you know, a handful of important things that need to be done. Let's look at one of them, this pipeline of research into new treatments, into new antibiotics. I'll just quote you a line from an article published on the World Economic Forum's agenda by Jeremy Farrar, the director of the Wellcome Trust, and by Mads Krugsgaard-Thompson, the chief executive officer of Novo Nordisk Foundation, and they say in that article, which you can find on the World Economic Forum website, over the last years, we have seen biotech companies going bankrupt and pharmaceutical companies withdrawing from investing in the development of new antibiotics. What is perhaps even worse, we see scientists crucial to delivering the new innovation we need, abandoning the cause. I mean, has, has it become the case that there's just not enough research going on and not enough investment going on? And what can we do about it? Yes, I would absolutely agree with that article and, and what they say. And so we were seeing people leaving the field, thanks to major investment by the US government, the Wellcome Trust, and indeed we and the Germans are contributing to Carbex, the kind of 
beginning part of that, the early part, is now developing and people are coming back into it. But I had a conversation only this morning with a company who have got a very interesting, funded by Carbex and Innovate UK, um, anti-gram negative antibiotic, and they're finding it difficult to get investment in this valley of death to take it forwards. And until we sort out uh, the, the pull side of this economic problem, it's going to go on being difficult. So at the moment, we pay far too little for antibiotics compared to how much we pay for other life-changing and life-saving technologies, particularly cancer drugs are an obvious example. We pay peanuts, and most are generic. And think about it. If you ran a company, would you want to invest in cancer treatments, which make a lot of money, or in antibiotics where you're not going to get a lot of money for it? Oh, and resistance will develop. You just hope it doesn't develop during your patent lifetime. So we have to find different ways of pulling them through and getting people to take them seriously and invest and one way that we've been trying this out in, in England is to uh, have a pilot of what we've nicknamed our Netflix subscription system, where we're trying to evaluate the value of a new antibiotic to our society at a broader level, because we and then pay a subscription. So we're paying for it to sit on the shelf and only be used when it's really needed. And that's working its way through our system at the moment. Is that a, a health service, for example, paying for the access to these drugs rather than paying each time they use the drug? So what's the benefit of that? You're absolutely right. Normally, drug companies get funded or paid by pile them high and get a small profit on each one or uh, drugs for rare diseases. So they have a massive profit each time. And for antibiotics, what we want is to have them available, but only used when essential. So we want to value the advantage to an individual patient whose life is saved, the advantage to that ward that they and the hospital that they can't pass it on uh, that bug because it's been treated, and therefore to society. So if we move forward to make this part of our way of going forward, then we'll only take the ones and put them through the subscription system where we pay each year for that right because they attack bugs that are really a problem for us and they're innovative and we can't get it another way. But if enough countries move into this sort of payment, then actually that is a pull incentive. And at the moment... Um, America is having a look at the Pasteur Act, which is a bipartisan act looking to do exactly this sort of pull incentive and subscription mechanism. So our learning is really important for them. Um, and we really hope that that will go through. So obviously, all of this requires a big international effort. Do you see anything on the horizon that can move this forward? Well, I'm always hopeful, and under the UK G7 presidency, health ministers recognised the wider value of antimicrobials and agreed a way to procure, reimburse and pay for them, called G7's shared valuation principles. 
Meanwhile, the finance ministers said that they thought implementing pull incentives was very important and they agreed to pilot. So Germany is now picking up on the antimicrobial issue in their G7 and have said it's a priority. And we've opened discussions with Japan to build on this. How do we get pull incentives to happen? Different countries want to do it in different ways, but so that the sum of the parts is big enough to make it a market worthwhile, that we will have the drugs to save lives and enough money in the system that biotechs making first-class drugs don't go bust. The patient gets them at the end of the day. Dame Sally Davis, the UK's special envoy on antimicrobial resistance. Before her, you heard Chris Murray, director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Thanks to them and to the World Economic Forum's Matthew Oliver for help making this episode. You can read more about how a Netflix-style subscription model could help tackle AMR on the World Economic Forum's website. There's a link to it in the article that accompanies this episode. Please subscribe to this, Radio Davos, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating and a review. And don't miss our sister podcast meet the leader and the world economic forum book club podcast and join the conversation about all those podcasts and any others on the world economic forum podcast club look for that on facebook this episode of radio davos was written and presented by me robin pomeroy with editing by jerry johansson and studio production by gareth nolan we'll be back next week but for now thanks to you for listening and goodbye